You push buttons and you just don't know what's happening, right? Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, thank you so much for joining us at UCC this morning. Uh, this morning we're going to continue on a series we started off last week called Missio Dei. Missio Dei is a Latin term that means the mission of God. And what we really wanted to talk about over these next couple of weeks was, what's your mission? What has God called you to do? What is, it, what is your mission for God? And that's kind of actually a funny thing because people would say, um, I'm this, I'm that. But if I said to you, what's your mission from God? would be like, ah, you know, like uh, to love people, right? Like we kind of go with the easy answers. But I would say to you that there is a mission that God has for you. Let's recap what we talked about last week. Last week, we looked at this term called missional, right? For about a decade now, church leaders and writers have been talking about it. And it's kind of filtered down to people now. But this idea of missional is this concept within the church, especially the North American church, that talk about the missionary understanding of God. Right? So as God has sent his son into the world, we as his followers are now sent into the world. Um, we've been talking about this idea that the church in North America, and I use that phrase uh, precisely because churches around the world in China, Latin America, Middle East, they, they, they get it. They are sent out into the world. right? But for North America, what we seem to do is we try to create these experiences in church and say, come to us. Let us entertain you, let us do this, let us do that. And what we're finding is less and less people are coming to us. Well, the point of on what God called us to is to actually be sent into the world to these people. So we looked about this idea of missional. We talk about this idea of sanctification. And I said to you, the first step of sanctification is you've got to die to yourself. Before you can actually embrace Jesus, embrace the kingdom of heaven, you, have, you must first lay down before God your agenda, your ideas, your thoughts, and say, Lord, it's you first. That's why Jesus, when he teaches, says, listen, unless you hate mother and father, brother, sister, husband and wife, you know, unless you hate them more than you love me, then you're not going to be able to follow me. In other words, that word hate is not about an, an anger. It's more about loving less, right? So Jesus says you must love less everything else in your life in order to love me more because I must be center. And as North Americans, we are very much not into the less part. We are puffed up, we are proud, we're entitled, we are arrogant, but we are not humble. And Jesus says humility is a first step in Christ-likeness. And the second part is being set apart. So once you come to Jesus and say, Lord, I give everything to you, then God comes along and sets you aside for his work. Remember, the word holiness is not about perfection or purity. It's about being set aside for what God wants to do in your life. And so that was the next step in there. We talked about uh, John chapter 20 and... um, Remember I said to you that Jesus' post-resurrection appearance is, in other words, after uh, he rose from the dead, he has 50 days before he's going to go to heaven because that's when the day of Pentecost is coming. So whatever he says in that time is very important because he's trying to make sure the disciples get what he's trying to, talk, uh, try to teach them. And in John 20, 21, he says, Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This idea of sending is not just simply something we talk about, but as God sent Jesus as the first missionary into this world, so then Jesus sends us into the world as well, too. We talk about this idea of missional balance, right? So we talk about being sent. We we, we have to remember there's two parts to it. The first part is gathered, right? The Sunday morning is a gathered part, right? Our midweek city group time, that's a gathered part, right? And what that is... That function serves as encouragement, as a time for people to come together. The gathering is very important, right? Because that is actually, when God calls people, he first gathers them together for encouragement, for teaching, for discipleship, for all these things. And then the second part is he scatters them. 
So when you leave this door, when you walk out that door into the world, you are scattered. You're going into the work, into school, into your friendships, your relationships, and then you're scattered. That's when your light shines. That's what God wants. And so both have to exist. If we're only being gathered and not being sent out, that's wrong. But if we're only sent out and not gathered, that's also wrong as well, too. The both have to exist together. And we see both these themes in the Old and in the New Testament. So that's what we talked about last week. A phrase I didn't share with you last week, but one I sure probably should have said, is really when we talk about sanctification, here's how you need to understand it. It's progress, not perfection. See, as Christians, our failures, our fallings, the way the Bible calls it, our sin, it weighs heavy upon us, and as it should, because it is how we are separated from God. But for some of us, it, it tends to occupy. We are more occupied with what we've done wrong than with forgiveness and then what God has done right. And so we have to realize that God's not called us to perfection. He's called us to progress. So I don't know when you've encountered Jesus. I don't even know if some of you here have even yet to encounter Christ in that context. But I do know this, that whenever you encounter Jesus to today, there's supposed to be some sort of growth, something. And what we can see in our culture today, and especially Christian culture, is there isn't a lot of that growth. That the mature Christians, uh, uh, men and women of faith that we talk about historically, we don't see a lot of that today because what we are seeing is, is kind of actually the opposite. And that's kind of what I want to kind of talk about this morning a little bit. Um, I came across this article uh, by the arch, one of the archbishops in uh, America. Uh, he wrote an article talking about politics in America. And, of course, we are looking to the south and we're like, oh, it's good to be Canadian right now, right? Like, we, 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 we look at that. Well, well, the archbishop was kind of talking about it and saying, listen, there's something else going on here. And there's something else, and I kind of talked about this last week just briefly, but this idea of that Christians are looking at our political structure in America, and they're saying, how do we engage? Where do we engage? And again, please understand, I'm not saying which person is better than the other. I, as I said last week, they're both horrific choices, okay? But the problem is, though, is in that context, how do you actually go, I'm going to... How do you engage in that, right? And as Christ followers in America, they're kind of going through an identity crisis in that. And this is what he says, and I think this is actually really important. He says this, losing people who are members of the church in name only is an imaginary loss. It may, in fact, be more honest for those who leave and healthier for those who stay. We should be, more, uh, we should be focused on commitment, not numbers or institutional throwaway. We have nothing to be afraid of as long as we act with faith and courage. So here's what he's saying. In this whole political uh, conversation, people are saying things like this. Well, the church is dying off anyways. So does this, does this person, this candidate, appeal to Christians? Well, the other part of it is that, well, who cares? The church is dying, right? And so the archbishop writes this article and says, listen, the, the loss in the church, the dying of the church, it's actually kind of imaginary. And I'm going to kind of unpack that for you in a second here. And he says, it's actually a little bit different than that. There's a guy named Ed Stetzer, and he talks about this concept of nominal Christians. And he says what we are seeing in North America, and I use, again, precisely that, in North America, we have a class of Christian called a nominal Christian. And that nominal Christian is actually what we're seeing leaving the church. And he says, you know, in Christianity in in North America, there are three categories. The first one one is a cultural Christian. He says, a cultural Christian is made up of people who believe themselves to be Christians simply because their culture tells them they are. They are Christian by heritage. They grew up in the church, not Christ. So here's what he's saying. 
when you fill out a survey, you know, we just did a census in Canada, and we're going to uh, wait to see the results on that. And one of the things, of course, Christians will look, like, look at is the religious makeup of Canada. Well, spoiler alert, it's actually declining as far as Christians. Now, here's the thing, though, right? When you look at a, at, at a census, you look at the categories of religious, and you're going, well, I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not Muslim. I don't think I'm an atheist. I think I'm a Christian. And you check that mark off. If I was running the census, if you marked the Christian button, there'd not be a drop-down menu. How often do you attend church? Twice a year? Okay, you're an atheist. Okay, let's go back over there, right? So, but the thing is, though, with culturally, people will self-identify as a Christian. Why? Because what else are they? Well, that's actually not an accurate representation. So if, if 75% of Canadians say they're Christian, I don't, I don't know if that's actually accurate. Actually, we think that since, uh, I think the last time, it was 63%, right? And then, of course, pundits and the talking heads going, oh, see, the church is dying in, in the States. And, of course, pastors are like, oh, we better do something because the church is dying. It's not dying. It's this cultural Christians who are now no, no longer self-identifying. The sec- second category, he says, is congregational Christians. It says, they are similar to the first group, except these individuals at least have some connection to a congregational life. They have a home church they grew up in, and perhaps they were married there. They might even visit occasionally what we call CEOs as pastors, Christmas, Easter, and other holidays, right? Now, here's what's interesting, right? As a pastor in a church, and I've been doing this for a couple of decades now, um, I hear people say, oh, you know, I attend that church. That's my home church. I haven't seen you. Oh, I, I come out at Christmas. I'm like, doesn't it get kind of boring? You hear the same sermon every year. It's only come out one time. Like, why do you keep talking about, you know, the baby Jesus? And I was like, well, you can only show up at one time a year, right? I, I love what Francis Chan has to say about this, right? Like, and Francis Chan, he talks about Christmas and Easter for pastors. He says, pastors have this tremendous amount of pressure. I got to preach the best sermon ever at Christmas or Easter for these CEOs who show up so that maybe they'll show up twice a year or three times a year. And woo, well, that'd be great, right? No, it's not great, right? And so what Ed Setzer says is we have congregational Christians, and this is the reason why at, at Christmas or Easter, you'll see parents show up and their kids go to church with them. The kids may not go to church any other time of year, but at, at this time of year, it's like, okay, I'm gonna, mom and dad want me there. It's, it's part of our tradition. That's what we'll do. And so Ed Setzer calls those people congregational Christians. Well, the good news is the last category is what we call convictional Christians. This is made up of people who are actually living according to their faith. So Ed Setzer says this about the nominal Christians. As Christians find themselves more and more on the margins of American society, people are beginning to count the cost. While it used to serve Americans well to carry the label Christian, in most circumstances, think about running for public office, for instance. Hello. Um, It can actually be a polarizing or considered intolerant now. So for those who really don't have any skin in the game, shutting the label makes sense. So here's what he's saying. Traditionally, in the 1950s, 60s, early, early in our culture... Being a Christian was a label that actually made sense and actually got you places, right? Politicians call themselves Christians. Businessmen call themselves Christians. Why? Not because they believe the stuff. Because it gives them a wider appeal. It gives them a base of people to draw from. But now you call yourself a Christian. We're like, oh, are you sure you want to be that? And they're like, well, I don't know if I want to be that, actually. So maybe I'm, I'm going to shed that label. And so when we talk about the demise of the church, what we're really seeing is the demise of the label Christians, the nominal Christians, right? Because here's what's interesting, right? So when we talk about nominal Christians, we are seeing that, that growth, but the authentic Christians, the green type at the bottom, we are actually seeing an uptick. Did you know that there is a, um, depending on which statistician you talk to, there's about a 7 to 12% increase in 20-somethings in the church. That there has been this revival amongst 20-somethings, people coming back to faith in the church, right? So that green band at the bottom there, believe it or not, that hasn't changed in a, in, in a long time, right? 
we talk about nominal Christians. Yes, they're shedding, they're leaving. And I actually think it's a good thing. I love that quote there that Ed says, reports of Christianity's demise in America have been greatly exaggerated. While the main thrust of good research does not indicate that the percentage of Americans who self-identify as Christians is declining, these data are not necessarily a bad thing. If three out of four Americans call themselves Christians, we are in big trouble. And I think that's kind of true, right? I don't know if you've ever, um, at, at work or in school, somebody who calls himself a Christian who self-identifies that, but they live a way that doesn't really kind of back up what they say. Right? Like there's, you know, um, pictures of them or I don't, whatever it would be. I don't know. I don't want to uh, categorize them too much. But I'm just going to say this, that what we are seeing, when people say, oh, the church is dying, it's not dying. The church is Christ. Jesus can't die, right? And there's always a group of people, there's always a remnant of people who believe what they say. But I do think that there is less people self-identifying because they don't really care. And I'm actually happy. I'm, I'm glad of that. Because then we start to get to the people who actually believe in this, who are actually faithful to this. So the demise of Christianity is greatly exaggerated. And people say, when I hear that, when I, and you'll see it, like you'll hear headlines. And, and Christians are just as guilty about this. People, uh, fear-mongering Christians will talk about, oh, the church is dying. And then they'll say, well, buy my book and I'll tell you how not to die. Or, 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 or come to my conference and I'll tell you how not to die. I'm like, you all need to just kind of calm down, right? Authentic Christians have always been there and they always will be. But you need to understand something. They're not as, as great as they were, but that's okay. Again, totally okay with that. Why? Because then we can begin to separate authentic from inauthentic. And that's actually a good thing. Um, so when Jesus teaches, he kind of gives us two perspectives of here. right? When we talk about this idea of mission, I'm going to say to you, what's your mission in the world? Jesus tells us, listen, by the way, when we talk about mission, there's two realities you need to understand. The first one is, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, listen, there are people out there who need the gospel, but there's too few workers, right? And that's a constant thing throughout the gospels Jesus talks about. Listen, get out there. There's people who need the gospel, right? But there's too few people doing it. Now, one of the things I said in the first service, I want to kind of say it in the second service as well too. I'm trying to think of how to say this in a nice way, which is, I don't have that much of a filter anyways. But so, he, listen, some of you have been sharing your faith with family or friends or, 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 or classmates, and you see nothing happening. And you say to yourself, is it me? Oftentimes, I find that Christians become more insecure if they live an outcome-based faith. In other words, I've shared my faith. Why isn't this person falling to their knees and declaring Jesus is Lord? Right? Like, why is that not happening? Like, I don't know. I'm great. Why not? Right? I think what we forget is Jesus tells us, listen, I'm at work in the world but I may not be able to work in the people you're sharing it with at this moment in time, right? There is, there's kind of an ebb and flow in, in that regard. And so Jesus says that people out there need the gospel, but sometimes we tend to, tend to look at our little small group and saying, well, I'm doing everything I can. Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, how about over this group over here, right? And so that's kind of the, the first part. The second part Jesus tells us, listen, you can share the gospel with lots of people, only a few are gonna respond. That's, other, that's the other part, I think, as Christians, we forget. We think we're supposed to be the majority. And so, in, traditionally, when, 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 when uh, people say, you know, we live in a Christian country, 80% of people call themselves Christians. That's not a Christian country. Right? That's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not even supposed to be talking about. But we think that Christians, we're supposed to be the majority. Did you know, historically, we've operated best when we're the minority? We actually do better when, when people are against us. When we actually are in power, high 305, Constantine called, right? Like when we are in power, we don't do well with that. But when the church is persecuted, 
when people start yelling at us, hating us, i.e. the rest of the globe, we do better in that, actually, that context. And so we talk about this idea of, of mission, a couple things. One is tons of people need the gospel, but may not be the people you're talking to yet. And the second thing is you can talk to 100 people and only two people may respond and you think you're a failure, but heaven rejoices. So you have to have those two tensions in, in, in play there. And again, I've kind of already mentioned this, but like, what if God's mission through us isn't about what we can do for God, but about partnering with what God is already doing? We do not create, we serve the creator. See, we tend to, as middle class, white, most of you, uh, mocha, I don't know, whatever you want to call us, right? We, we, tend to, we tend to share the gospel with our peer groups. And because of our context, we share it and we go, okay, there's a gospel. But did you know that the gospel thrives amongst the poor and the marginalized? Do you know why? Because the gospel is good news to people who have nothing. To the affluent, the gospel is bad news. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait. You mean I have to give up everything to follow Jesus? Do you see how big of a house I have? I have a pretty good job. And my car is, you know, under 10 years old. I feel pretty good about that, right? Like, to the affluent, the gospel is not good news. It's actually bad news because there is sacrifice that's required. And so sometimes we, 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 tend, to, we tend to witness or, or share the gospel with affluent. And that's fine. They need Jesus too. But don't be surprised when the affluent is like, well, I'm not really interested in this. Maybe when I'm about to die. Or maybe when I'm old. Or maybe when I'm, whatever it would be. Whatever context they want to find themselves in. Right? And so when Jesus says that people out there need to know the gospel, you just might be sharing it with the wrong ones. You just need to go outside of that, perhaps, and find the people who need that. And again, the people who need that, the poor, the marginalized, those who are, uh, who are being attacked by culture, that's the people who need the gospel. And those are the ones who are receptive to it. Why? Because they've got nothing else. I've always been astounded when I've, gone, when I've left Canada and gone around the world to talk to other Christ followers how much faith and how much joy they have with their faith and how little they have. And it's like, I don't do Okay, I'm like, I'm going to package you up and bring you back and tell people about this, right? And when they get, they get up there and they talk about slums, they talk about this, we're like, oh, that's great, that's great. And we forget that that's actually happening here too, right? And so we, we have to kind of remember that. Okay, so now, what's your mission? God wants to work in you. That's the first part. But now the second part is God wants to use us as a, as, as a community to do something. Now, what does that look like? Now, when I talk about mission, it was funny, last week I had a conversation with somebody and they said to me, well, what does God want me to do? And I said to them, that's the wrong question. And they're like, well, you're talking about mission. And I said, yes, I'm talking about mission, but you think that I've got a detailed list of what you're supposed to do. Do you know why some people won't ever share their faith or, their, or, or, or feel they're in mission? It's because they think their circumstances need to change before they do so. Well, if I had this job, if I was over there, I talked to this one young adult in, when I, in my previous uh, job. They came to me and they said this. Oh, I feel God calling me. Okay, listen, check this out, okay? The young adult came up to me and said, I feel God calling me to this country. My like, God's fantastic, right? You know, go wherever God's calling you, absolutely. And I said, well, let me ask you a question because I, I, can, I, I ask these questions. Uh, I said, well, what are you doing right now? You know, because they're trying to raise funds to head off to that country to do this thing over there. I said, what are you doing right now? Well, I, I'm so busy raising funds. And I, you know, I don't, I'm like, do you have a church? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, well, are you serving? Well, I'm like, and so I stopped him. I said, listen, I just want to be clear of something here, okay? How did you first have a calling to this country? 
I went on vacation there. Okay. And I looked at them and I said, just so you know, God's not calling you to that country. Oh, yes, he is. I'm like, no, he's not. You're calling yourself to that country because you like it. You're not doing anything here. If you're really passionate about sharing the gospel and spreading the love, you do it right now. You don't have to wait to, uh, to, to you know, a different time zone, different country. I always find it interesting how people get called to tropical areas. Who gets called to the Netherlands? Or head, head somewhere cold and miserable. That, that kind of mission, I believe. God's called you there. Woo, oh, here's some money. Go. Blessings. You, know, you, got, you got a tough, right? Absolutely, right? Um, but people seem to want to go to tropical places and take pictures with babies and kids. And that's okay. But it's like, I kind of like, well, okay, you know, there's no people who love Jesus. You have to go. Okay, fair enough. Um, so when we talk about this idea of mission, you have to kind of take out from that this idea that you have to go somewhere else or be something else. What if I said to you that right where you are right now is exactly where God wants you? Well, I'm unhappy. Yeah, I didn't say you have to be happy. Well, I don't like my job. Well, that can happen too. Well, we always use these excuses that we use as barriers to kind of get on mission. I'm going to say to you this morning, or this afternoon now, that if I was to tell you your mission in one word, the word would be reconciliation. We sang about it this morning. I don't know if you picked up on that. But it's a word that we don't use a lot today. But I want to kind of unpack this word. Because Paul in 2 Corinthians really unpacks it for us. And he says, this is our mission. Now, the word reconciliation is a very interesting word. It's a very deep word. Everything we sung about this morning, and we're about to celebrate communion as well too, is wrapped up in this word. Not, not a word that we use a lot of, unless you're an accountant and you know, we talk about reconciling funds and all that kind of stuff, right? But reconciliation is basically the basis of the New Testament. Now, let me give you a definition. Reconciliation is connected to the word atonement. Atonement means a condition without tension. Think about that for a second. A condition without tension. It comes from an old English word, which means at one minute, right? Two things becoming one. When Christ died on the cross for us, he removed the tension between us and God. Stop there. You need to understand something. I know that there are good people out there. And sometimes we think we need to be good people. And we probably should be good people. But goodness is not salvation. Your work is not salvation. How much you give away, how much you do is not salvation. If that's what you think salvation is, you have not read the gospel. We sang about it this morning. You are sinful. You are broken. You are lost. And that's, and that's the good news. The even better news is Christ died on the cross for you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's reconciliation, right? And so then it goes on to say this. By Christ's atonement, we have restored relationship with God without any barriers if we choose. Our ability to have full relationship is restored. This is reconciliation. and This is our message and mission. We live, act like a people who have a restored relationship with God. One of the ways people know what we actually believe what we say is how we act when we suffer. Suffering is this moment of the removal of our filters, removal of our masks, and the raw who we are kind of comes out. And I find that Christians suffer badly. Now, let me say this to you, okay? If you're the person who goes, woohoo, I lost my job, woo, that's great, you're weird. Okay, and you, I, I, you need to see somebody. Nobody says that. I've lost my job. I've never said that. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is when we come in, in, in points of our lives where loss of job, loss of relationship, loss of health, we mourn like everyone else does, 
but we don't mourn completely like everybody else does. Because there's this moment we also say too, but yet will I praise him? In the Psalms, David says, you know, my life is being, people are chasing after me, trying to take my life. I'm surrounded by my enemies. Yet will I praise him. I don't know what God has for me. I don't know what God has for me, uh, what what my life's going to look like. Yet will I praise him. So what I'm trying to say to you is this idea of, of how we live our lives amongst everyone else. And by the way, people look at you. They watch you. And I get, it's creepy, I know, but it's, it's true, right? People watch how we live. And if we say to people, we believe in God, that's the first thing. Okay, great. And we believe that God wants to be in a relationship with me. Oh, okay. And that God has, has, has a destiny for me and a purpose for me and a mission for me. Okay. And then you break up with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. Ah, the world's over, everything's over. It's like, how much do you believe what you said you just believed? Oh, I lost my job, I lost my, my I, I, I have this disease, I, like, Whatever it would be. And please understand, I don't mean to belittle that, even though it sounds like it. I, uh, what I mean to say to you is this. We don't know what this life holds for us. We don't. But we do have God. And past this life is a, rea- is a reality that, that is so beyond our understanding. And so we suffer, yes, and we mourn and we weep, and absolutely. But we also say, Lord, I have you still. You're the only thing this life can't take away from me. And so we have to understand that when we, we talk about what our faith looks like. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians um, 5, because we're going to take a look at this. Being reconciled to God is not a one-time thing. It's a constant thing. Every day I must humble myself before the Lord and ask him to cover my sins, speak a good word for, the, for me to the Father. Please forget my thousands of transgressions every day. Reconciliation is only possible when the distance between us and God is felt and known, heart and mind. One of the reasons why when you share your faith with your friend, a coworker, a schoolmate, and you're saying, hey, Jesus is my savior, they're like, well, good for you. I don't need a savior. I have a job. It's not a great one, but I got a job. I got an apartment. I, got, I have these things. I'm pretty self-sufficient. I'm okay. I don't need a savior. Maybe you do, but I don't. And you're like, well, uh, how do I help you understand that? That person has to come to the point in their life and they will, we all do, where they feel it. Like, wait a minute, there's more, right? They have to know it. And it's that moment that you're there in their life, and that's where you have that conversation. Second Corinthians 5, uh, verse 11 says this. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What, are, what, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. What's Paul saying there, okay? He's saying this very, very, very clearly, right? We have to start off with the fear of the Lord. Now, that concept, of fear of God, we don't like it as Christians, right? God, Jesus is my friend. He's my home. He's my BFF, right? Like, like, like we, that's how we portray God. I get it. We're trying to talk about a relational God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Now, what I think the writer, what Paul's trying to say and the Old Testament writers are trying to say is, fearing God is fearing this idea of what life looks like outside of God. And when you think about God for a second, you realize that we have the Bible, which reveals uh, God to us, but God is infinite, so it doesn't reveal all of God to us. And this is where we can learn from our Catholic brothers and sisters, that they understand the mystery of God. Like they kind of, they kind of put together their services and their churches to kind of magnify the mystery of God, because they say God is God, and there's mystery to us, right? We as evangelicals, oh, no, no, we've got God down in systematic theology, we know everything. 
No, we don't. And there's that mystery. So when, when the writer says the fear of God, what he's really trying to say is, listen, don't think you know what's going to happen. Don't think you know God. This is what the Bible reveals about God, and this is what you need to understand about God, but realize as well, too, there's much outside of that as well, too. And so Paul starts off when he talks about the ministry, the mission of reconciliation is, is that we have to remember who we are. We have to remember our position in God. Because now look what he says in verse 13 and 14. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. Look at that phrase, out of our mind. It's nice to know that even back in ancient times, Christians were thought to be out of their minds. And this is a theme, actually, Paul uses in Corinthians, right? Because in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? And so in 1 Corinthians 2.14, right? Um, this, uh, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Next week, we start a new series uh, on the book of Jonah. And I'm really excited about it. I've been thinking about uh, Jonah for like about four months now, and I'm really excited to finally have a chance to kind of share this, this series. And the first sermon, we're actually going to look at this concept of the supernatural. And it's interesting, Greg, right? because, you know, we can talk about God, but we realize we're talking about a supernatural being. And that everything that happens within Christianity is supernatural. Right? And so Paul is saying is, listen, as you talk to people, as you are on mission in the world, understand something. Not everyone's going to get it. They may look at you like, you're kind of out of your mind. And you're like, yeah, I get that. You're talking about an invisible friend? You're talking about you stare at the sky and think there's something up there, right? Like, these are the things we talk about, but you have to understand the world doesn't get it that way. It doesn't understand it that way. And so Paul says, and we talk about reconciliation, we have to first acknowledge that those you share this with, those you talk to, they may not get it. And I think, too, there's a class of Christian I like to call the angry Christian. And the angry Christian gets all the media time, right? And whether in the States or here, right? The angry Christian is like, you know, they're shaking their fists like, ah, you should know, you should know, you're going to hell, ah, right? The angry Christian, I think what they're trying to say, and I, I wish I could stop them and kind of translate for them, and just kind of say, okay, that person over there is really angry, and just don't read that placard they're holding. Um, but what they really meant to say is God loves you, and that if you don't know God, that's actually a bad thing. That's what they're, that's what they're trying to say. It's just everything else, don't worry about it, right? Because what they're trying to say is that I'm trying to tell you to understand that God loves you. And you don't care. And that makes me angry. Ah, Hulk smash, right? Whatever it would be, you know? And, and it's kind of like, okay, the, what they're trying to say, I understand their heart. At least I hope, I hope that's what they're trying to say. And maybe they're not quite getting it. When you share your faith, when you're on mission in the world, when people look at you like you're crazy or you're talking about this stuff, it's okay, actually. It's actually part of, uh, of what, what Jesus is talking about. Now look what he says in verse 18 19. Um, oh, sorry, uh, verse 16. A little too fast here. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in that way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Paul always wants the writer to, the, the reader to understand something. When you encounter Jesus, you're new. You're new. I don't feel new. You are new. Well, am, I, am I new? Well, you kind of act like you're new because all of a sudden the entire value system that you created up until that point in time of Jesus now changes. 
overnight? No, for the rest of your life, right? Your values, how you believe, how you think about this world, from that point on to the rest of your life is now changing and transforming into Christ's image. And so what he says here is that we have to stop looking at people with a worldly point of view. So in other words, if you're sharing your faith, share it as you want to, but don't share your morals. They're not going to get it. I remember having this one conversation with this guy, young adult guy. I said to him, hey, you know what? You probably shouldn't sleep around. You probably shouldn't sleep with whoever would sleep with you. He looked at me like, why not? And I'm like, well, it's not really what God wants. Oh, God. I'm like, okay, here, let me say something here. God has a plan for your life, and that plan is actually different than what you're living in, how you're expressing yourself. I know, I know love, intimacy, and all that, but it's not, and, and we had this really long conversation, and by the end of it, he, he understood my perspective, but he was going to do whatever he wanted to do, right? And so, what I was trying to help him to understand, but what I need, I need to understand is, he wasn't going to get it. He wasn't going to get it. And I was kind of looking at him from my own point of view of how, how things should be, and he wasn't going to understand it. Ephesians forces this, that People who are not connected to God, and this is not an elitism, not that we're better than. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that once you encounter Christ, your life kind of gets turned upside down, literally. Right? Paul's saying, listen, the worldly point of view, stop looking at it that way. Because in verse 18 and 19, he goes, all this is from God. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Remember, reconciliation, the removal of tension. In Romans, Paul says that if you are not a friend of God, you are an enemy of God. Mm. No in-betweens? No, we're just dating? No, we're just kind of friends. We're texting a little bit here and there? No, no. There's two categories Paul uses there. And he gave us, now, here's the terrifying part. He gives you the ministry of reconciliation. The mission of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Because now he makes his other claim in the next verse. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. You know what an ambassador is? An ambassador is a representative of a different country. So we have embassies in our country that are basically foreign soil in our soil. And the ambassadors are the people from that country who speak on the behalf of that country to the neighbor country that you're in. That's you. You are basically a missionary trying to convey God to a culture that doesn't understand. And it's actually getting worse. I remember talking to one guy, and he's talking about Mary and Joseph. And he's like, are they, do they, go, they attend your church? Uh, okay, we got to back up here a little bit more, right? Okay, let's, let's, let me unpack this a little bit differently for you, right? So what he's saying here is that, listen, God is making his appeal to humanity through you, through me. And when you go to your places of work or school or home or relationships, you may be the only Jesus these people know or meet. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And the ministry of reconciliation isn't uh, about, um, I'm going to share this and you're going to fall to your knees and declare Jesus. It's more of a constant thing. One of the things you have to be aware of is that there are moments in people's lives where they're more receptive to God. You ever been in a cafeteria or, or a grocery store or something, and you feel this, you feel like God's saying to you, go talk to that person. And you're like, no way. A, I don't know them. B, what are they going to think of me? And you're like, no, I rebuke that. That's not going to happen. I have no way. What if God is trying to help you to understand that sometimes people just need to know and that if you could just be, be obedient, I'm not encouraging you to talk to strangers. It's not what I'm doing. I am saying, though, that sometimes you need to listen to God a little bit more. 
and not worry about your reputation and your status and worry more about what God wants? We don't know that. And, and, and I'm not going to say as well, too, that even if you obey, there have been many times where I walked up to somebody, oh, my gosh. And I said, hey. Um, and I try to start a, try to up a conversation like I'm cool. Hey, hi, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, yeah, those, uh, those uh, cantaloupes look right. Uh, I don't know what else to say, right? And Jesus loves you. And then run away, right? Like, uh, we, we have these conversations, but we're so much, we're, we're more worried about what people think about us than about what God wants to do in that person's life. And so what we have to do is we have to realize that God has called us to be ministers of reconciliation. We don't know what that looks like. And it's, it's part supernatural, it's part obedience. Let me close with the second part of reconciliation. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember I said to you, whatever Jesus says before he disappears is very important. This is the last thing he says. And the last thing he says gives us context for this. He says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, there's three categories of context that Jesus is giving his disciples, and they understood this. Jerusalem are your friends, are your family, people you have relationships with, right? Judea are your neighbors, right? So you look at Jerusalem on a map, you look at Judea, it's right next to it, Right? But then the third category is Samaria. We remember, Samaritans hate the Jews, and Jews hate the Samaritans. So what is Jesus saying? And you'll be my witnesses amongst people who hate you. You'll be witnesses of people in your, your friends, your family. You'll be witnesses with your neighbors, people you work with, the people you go to school with. And you'll be witnesses to those who just completely hate you. Those who are completely different than you. Those who have a value that's different than you. And how do you do this witnessing? How do you do this mission? How to become ministers of reconciliation? By the power of the Spirit. Stay there. The Spirit will come upon you, and he will give you what you need to do what you need to do. 